Live from New York City, welcome to Praxis 1313, the podcast. This is Bernard Harcourt. This year at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought, we've been discussing the question of praxis, the question, what is to be done? It's a question that is rarely heard anymore in critical theory, but could not be more timely, given the times of crisis we find ourselves in. With global climate change, the hegemonic rise of neoliberal economic policies and growing inequality in society, with the upsurge of a fascist new right at an international dimension, nuclear proliferation and conflict, these times, more than any, call for us, critical thinkers, to answer the question, what is to be done? So this year, in Praxis 1313, we've turned to 13 critical texts that weigh in on the question of critical practice. Too much critical theory today sidesteps the issue and is content just diagnosing the crises. In this series, we're asking for more. We've been searching for practices uh, to address the crises, and so we've been reading a range of books, from Chantal Mouffe's call for a left populism, to Hart and Negri's call for assembly, uh, to the Invisible Committee's manifesto for insurrection, to Moton and Harney's writings on the undercommons, and more. In this podcast, I'll speak with the authors of the books we discussed. In this first podcast, I had the pleasure to meet up with Joshua Clover, the author of a book published by Verso in 2016 titled Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings. In the book, Joshua Clover proposes that the history of uprisings has gone through three periods correlating to different stages of capitalism and that we've now entered uh, something called Riot Prime, a new period of uprisings that we might call the Age of Riots, marked by the rioting we've witnessed in London, in the Paris banlieues, and in the streets of Ferguson and Baltimore. As he opens the book, Riots are coming, he writes. They are already here. More are on the way. No one doubts it. They deserve an adequate theory. I'm particularly interested in that relationship between riots and theory, between praxis and theory, uh, and that's what I want to explore with Joshua Clover. But to set the stage, I want to start by asking him about the arc of the book and what the book aspires to. Let me turn it over then to Joshua Clover. It wanted to look at essentially two trajectories. The first is trajectory within uh, what Charles Tilley calls the repertoire of struggles, the ways that people gather together collectively to transform their uh, conditions and the, the world around them. And in the West, which is really the area in which I feel at least somewhat knowledgeable, I do not claim to be a, a scholar of global struggle, uh, so the book mostly looks at the UK, uh, Western Europe, eventually the United States. Uh, it seems to me empirically clear and sort of inarguable, even if it doesn't make everyone happy, that what we've seen is a period in which the leading form of struggle was what generally gets called the riot, um, and that's true from about the 14th century when, when something like the riot, as we would recognize it, uh, appears and takes form, until the 19th century, at which point it's displaced as the orienting form of struggle by the strike, the labor strike, which appears in a substantial and familiar way between 1800 and 1830, and is, is manifestly the leading and orienting form well into the 20th century uh, when, in the West, the uh, historical labor movement wanes dramatically, and the riot, which never went away, uh, reascends to its sort of position as the leading form uh, of struggle, although it, I, I will turn out to have a somewhat capacious account of what qualifies for a riot. So that's the riot strike riot trajectory, although as I try and work through the new era of riot, or riot prime as I call it, um, is quite distinct from the original riot, although deeply related to it, but not, not in any way identical. Uh, and so that sequence, riot strike riot, as in the title, is one of the things I'm looking at. The other trajectory I'm looking at is the history of capitalism itself, particularly right. the history of capital accumulation. 
As because it, those three periods map on then to different periods that you talk about circulation versus production. Right? I think so. Not everyone agrees with me, but that's okay. the Marxological war begins. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, for me, there's various periodizing accounts of capitalism. I, I'm interested in Giovanni Arrighi's, which uh, proceeds via sort of cycles of accumulation led by hegemonic nation states. Uh, but there's other accounts as well. And I thought I would sort of somewhat ambitiously or perhaps uh, in a foolhardy way try and make this uh, broad claim about capitalism tout court uh, as having initially a phase in which it's led by, by merchant capital, by the logic of circulation, exchange, the marketplace, uh, with the rise of manufacturing and industrial capital. It's led by production and uh, with the wave of uh, deindustrialization in the West, uh, we see that falling away and a return under the aegis of finance capital and things like logistics and, and uh, shipping and just-in-time production. We see a return of circulatory logics uh, dominating. And I should stress before I, I, I see you uh, excited to, to press me on this, I should stress there's no claim that either production or circulation ever goes away. They clearly both have to exist in a, in a complex dialectical relationship for there to be capitalism at all. I'm just sort of talking about like center of balance right. and where capital goes looking right. for profit. Right, okay. And so, and so just to map this on, basically, the, the early form of riots was associated with a particular form of circulation of goods, uh, predominantly. That was then, there's a crisis moment that brings about a transformation of capitalism such that it becomes more of a production, dominantly productive um, enterprise associated, I suppose, with the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, okay. and then another crisis in about 1973, uh, flipping us back to more of a circulatory uh, economy, uh, political economy. Now, and so those crisis points are the same crisis points for the shifts in political economy and for the shifts in forms of protest. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. So, okay. So, and so that's, so that's, that's precisely where I want to kind of get, get into, get into this. Um, I take it that the, I take it that it's, I mean, so there, it's more of course than just a, a, a correlation. I mean, there is a, there is a, there's a, there's a causal explanation here, right? I mean, and, 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 and it is, tell me, tell me if this is right. I mean, on my reading, at least it is the, it is the political economy that's driving the forms of protest um, and the and the crises that are changing the forms of protest is that is that fair? It it really is, and uh, of course we live in a, um, a, a history in which the theory praxis discussions you're so interested in have been in many ways allergic to strong claims about causality, uh, strong claims about determination. I am not allergic to such claims, okay. uh, and indeed, okay. I'm actually only interested in causality. That's, okay. that's, in some sense, my great field of inquiry is um, the relationship of causality and political struggle. Okay, 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 good, good, good. So, so now, okay, and so, <laughs> and so to go back to what originally made me so interested in your book and in talking to you is that in that relationship to causality, uh, I find the original Marxian... Marx's notion of praxis and of the relationship, in some sense, of the relationship between theory and praxis, um, which has shifted, of course, over time. Uh, but when I say original, it's because, because there's a sense in which in your work, like in Marx's, there is a, there is a, there is a course to history that is determinative of praxis uh, in a way that we don't go around formulating a praxis in response to, say, a particular historical context, that the praxis is shaped by the historical context. Um, it's almost as if, so, so the role of the theorist is not to shape Praxis. Praxis is shaped by history. Period. Um, you don't need me here, Bernard. You're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, so that's. But okay. So so okay. So 
Now that's that's so that brings about a very particular relationship between theory and praxis, right? Um, and and a very particular role for the critical theorist. Um, I, it it turns you, I take it, into a diagnoser of crises and of political economy. Um, uh, but the, the praxis in that sense has a life of its own. That's absolutely right. So uh, to shorthand exactly what you just said, which yeah. I think I agree with in every detail, uh, to shorthand it in slightly different language, um, my Marx is not a Leninist Marx, although I think Lenin is c- compelling reading and I recommend it to people. Um, but the idea of the vanguard, the vanguard party, the leading fraction that really understands what class struggle is and how it should work and brings that news as cadre, brings that news uh, to the active proletarian. But I, I, I do not believe that uh, should be done, but I, more importantly, because I don't want to have a moralized relation to uh, politics, I don't believe that can be done. I don't believe it needs to be done. Uh, I think that um, right, I'm interested in a descriptive, analytical, and predictive, but not prescriptive politics. So my question was, you know, I have a double question. Okay. One, uh, can we understand why we've seen this historical shift, riot to strike to riot? And two, once we recognize it, what can it tell us about the historical trajectory of capitalism itself? And I want to know those things. What I don't want to do is say like, oh, I've discovered through my studies the proper way to conduct class struggle, and uh, here's, here's how one should do it. I actually just don't think people leave their houses in the morning thinking, how will I do class struggle today? Um, and, and to depend on consciousness as the proper um, framework or comportment for adequate political action, I think, is a disastrous mistake. Right, right. So, in other words, the praxis is going to happen in the way it's going to happen, regardless of the theorizing, in a way. I mean, what's driving this is transformations of... Uh, capitalist uh, forms and crises moments um, and 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 it's almost I mean it's almost as if um, uh, even if we weren't here to analyze it uh, that wouldn't change what's going to take place and 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 when you predict for instance uh, riots or riot primes uh, for the next 5 15 or 40 years um, that's that's a that's a that's a that's a kind of that's a that's a hard scientific prediction in a sense. I mean, it's it's a natural science prediction almost that really has no that doesn't even that doesn't even go through consciousness of uh, of praxis, right? So I mean, or, or 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 tell me what you think. I mean, I, I want so I want to back away from something that I'm at risk of implying that people would be utterly correct to to want to challenge. I don't want to suggest that uh, people's choices in in how they want to conduct their lives or their political struggles don't matter, that it's all predetermined, that uh, it will be teleological in the accurate sense. This is a greatly abused word, but in the sense that it will be narrativized as having meaning from the position of its its end. Um, I don't mean to say those things. I think that um, people find themselves in conditions of uh, difficulty and immiseration and struggle, and what they choose to do in those moments matters greatly. What I don't think I would say is that um, having the correct slogans dictated to them uh, will direct any kind of revolutionary struggle along the right course or the wrong course, uh, for that for that matter. So, so to that extent, I agree. Um, I am trying to get at causality. You said natural sciences, and I think that's a useful, always imperfect, but useful comparison. Marx talks about trying to understand the laws of motion of capitalism, and that does seem to invoke in that, the natural sciences. And I think that's correct. But laws of motion are somewhat general. Like, here's a law of motion. Capitalism will drive toward greater and greater productivity, and that means perforce. It's not a mystification. It's very clear. It means there will be more units output per labor hour input which means that there will be less and less need for labor. 
That's a law. That's an absolute law of motion. It's it can reverse briefly under strange circumstances for a couple of years at a time, but long durée, absolute. Laws of motion don't operate in the course of an evening in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014, uh, the longest riot in U.S. history by some measures. Uh, um, you can't. The law of motion doesn't tell you what's going to happen from one minute to the next to the next minute. So I want to be clear about. Um, the strength, but not the granularity, of a causal claim. Right, right, right. And so, and the the strength and not the granularity is this idea that um, it's because of where people are located, in part, as a result of displacements with capitalism post seventy three, be, being located in the public square rather than, say, in the factory, etc. That that they're going that there's going to be this tendency that you can then predict. Um, uh, and I, I, so I see that. So it's it's the broad strokes. It's not, of course, it's not. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not the the refined painting lines of each particular riot. But it's the broad strokes that particular forms of uprising are going to be more common given the uh, crises and the stages of capitalism that we're in. Okay. So now, all right. So. So now the relationship between the praxis then and your theorizing, there, there are two things that I'd like to, to push on right now. What, so one is, um, so, so again, this seems very uh, original Marxist, or very, um, very close to Marx's sensibilities towards praxis, in which, at, in which there would have been that the, the laws of capitalism would lead to a proletariat revolution, say, and it, it wasn't, it, it didn't need to be uh, instigated, it didn't need to be rendered self-conscious, it was going to happen in the same way here. Now, um, so critical theory in the 20th century takes a bit of an epistemological turn, uh, I would argue, and all of a sudden it's no longer, uh, in part perhaps because there wasn't an German Revolution, or for whatever reason, in the 1920s, 1930s, it takes an epistemological turn in the sense that we're now trying to figure out ideology, critique, what is it that's, what is it that's uh, stopping, what is it that's kind of preventing workers from engaging in revolution, um, and, and, and I, I would argue that it, that it has taken a huge epistemological turn, but first with ideology critique and then with Foucault and kind of regimes of truth, and it becomes, there, there, there emerges, basically critical, third, uh, critical theory emerges as a contested epistemological space about um, truth regimes and beliefs and how that influences. Now, I take it that that would not, that you wouldn't be taking that, you wouldn't need to take that detour. Um, there isn't a role, is there a role for ideology um, blocking in some way these practices that you're identifying associated to particular political economies? Yeah, big questions. I mean, I'll say my very Zen Marxist thing, which is, you know, there are no detours. Um, there's a reason we pass through that. But I would say, possibly modulating temporarily your account a bit, that we've passed through that and are more or less out of it, which is to say, the question, why was there not a planetary proletarian revolution, uh, uh, as, as Marx seemed to foresee, is a very, very good question. Um, the same way that people set themselves to asking the question, you know, why was the proletarian revolution in the Soviet Union as opposed to Germany or a more advanced economy? Uh, and that was a huge question. The question of why there wasn't a more broad-scale revolution uh, also can be understood as the foundation of, of what will be called Western Marxism with its engagement with ideology, with cultural production, with ideology critique, uh, which is there at the founding moment of critical theory, which is originally, of course, a term from... Uh, the, uh, from the Frankfurt School, although it later sort of escapes that, that history. But, uh, um, but that question of epistemology, of ideology, I agree, we, we, uh, it had to be passed through. And so I don't think that was a detour, but I think that, and here I imagine we'll have some disagreement, but what is life without disagreement? Um, 
we've actually survived that period and, and I think can look upon it and understand its bankruptcy fairly, fairly extraordinarily. Uh, um, which bankruptcy? The bankruptcy of critical theory, in, of, in that, in that uh, sense, of that, of that epistemological term, which is to say um, it didn't provide the answers to the questions it, it, it set out to answer and provided a lot of what may indeed be detours that, that keep academics busy but don't seem to me terribly significant to thinking about political struggle. Um, you mentioned Foucault, and uh, um, I have an ambivalent relationship to Foucault. I think there's, uh, as, as a descriptive account of regimes of truth or regimes of power, uh, it's uh, um, extraordinary and useful. What it lacks absolutely, and by his own admission, is adequate causality. Like, he actually has no account of how we move from one regime of power to another. Um, he just describes them in, in sequence. And the question of how we got from there to here, and we'll get from here to the next there, has, I think, reasserted itself dramatically in a way that's returned us to the question of historical causality. I think 2008, uh, if not 1973, I think 2008 is 73 coming home to roost, but um, has returned us to this question of historical causality in a way that proposes there's an objective history uh, that... Um, has its force and its movement independent of our epistemological relationship to it. Okay, and so, and so when you say that we've come out of that uh, epistemological detour, what you mean, what you would be saying then is that today, in terms of uh, our relationship to praxis, there isn't any kind of, in, it, there isn't an, an epistemological barrier. There aren't, there aren't then kind of illusions that are preventing people from engaging in the kind of praxis that would be correct, would be associated, or the kind of praxis that flows from a particular historical period or a period of capitalism. I mean, if this is a moment where I answer a question with a question, okay. uh, um, which, sure. is, which is not so much for you, but yeah. for all, all of us, yeah. which is when we think about the necessity for a self-knowing subject or, uh, or, or one with a proper understanding or knowledge um, uh, uh, and the need to achieve that, what, what kind of political subject and political struggle are we imagining at that point and recognizing? Which is, to take my opposition, I don't think it's the only one, and it's not an opposition, it's a, it's, I would insist it's dialectical, but don't we all, um, of, of riot and strike, the strike, one of its great appeals, uh, for, not just for, for people involved in the labor movement, but for people interested in this question of consciousness, is it does seem quite self-aware. Like, here's the whole theory, here's what labor is, point of production, denying capital profits, here's how it's going to work. Um, here is the union structure, or even the extra union structure, but it's very much in that, like, Here's the people who know, they're going to explain it, the workers are going to have knowledge of this, they're going to choose to transform their, and so on. Uh, and that tends to do a certain work of including some subjects into the category of adequate politics and excluding others. So people have been disinclined to recognize the riot as substantively political, it's... Um, E.P. Thompson, right, right. who had no, no patience for that, right. referred to the, um, uh, the spasmodic historians, I think was his, was his, like those whose only account is it's just a meaningless spasm uprising and can't be understood uh, as, a, as a meaningful political action. So my concern uh, about the idea that we have to um, recognize a self-knowing political subject who, who has... Um, overlapped the epistemological barrier and knows, and is, is you know, um, sujet, supposé, savoir, um, is that it ends up simply delivering us to a certain subject, consistently white, male, potentially bourgeois in the West, and excluding a different subject, often racialized, often gendered, and, and so on. And one of the things my book is about is not simply this abstraction of struggle, but it's about recognizing in the contemporary era the self-activity of racialized populations as being class struggle and not being some 
spots them in the middle of the night. Right. So, so there could be two. There could be two explanations or two alternative ways of thinking about this. Maybe both are right, but let me throw 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 them out. One would be, for instance, in the banlieue, the um, 2005 um, uprisings in the banlieue. One explanation is it's fully self-consciously a political act. It's it it it, it for the participants in the banlieue. They're not they they are themselves thinking that this is a political act, even. Even the acts that are the most identified with the pure forms of looting, say, of goods, um, that we, that the media tends to characterize as, you know, non-political, just uh, pure theft, right? So one explanation is no, that's actually self-consciously understood as a political act, um, uh, an act of appropriation, of political appropriation, or the second um, way of thinking about it would be, well. Um, even if it's not politically understood, um, it doesn't matter to the practice itself. The, 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 the practice is going to happen. The practice is not going to change. It's not going to necessarily change. It's not going to become different if it is self-consciously understood as political. It is going to be, it's going to be the riot. And the, riot, the form of the riot is not going to change regardless of the kind of self-reflectivity of the agent. Right, so those would be two alternatives. Uh, the, do you ascribe to both? Do you uh, do you see attention? Do you care? Yeah, you know, I'm inclined to take both. The second is probably closer to the way I've I've understood the world, which is to say, you touched on this before, right? About about the granularity as opposed to a large scope of. Um, what we're talking about is causality or determination. You know, I, I would maybe use the language of affordances or um, conditions of possibility. So capital and class get restructured at a global level. People get excluded from the, the formal wage, pushed into the marketplace, pushed into circulation. And, you know, as you, as you noted, people struggle where they are. So the question of the book is, where are people? And if people are in the marketplace and not the workplace, of course they're going to loot. And I'm glad you mentioned looting because that's the great continuity in the history of riot. Riots begin as what E.P. Thompson calls price setting, right? People can't afford bread and they march down to the baker and they say, you got to lower the prices. And if the baker says no, they take the bread. So the idea that that's somehow an exception or violate some standard of protest or is a bad protester is rubbish. It's, that's simply what struggle is historically. Um, as to whether or not there, so so that so your second possibility, which is that that act has meaning, whatever, however it's understood to mean, uh, I think it's true. The first possibility act I, I, I want to hold on to as well. Like I think we do a deep disservice to um, to proletarians, to black people, to women, to all kinds of people who are often excluded from self consciousness and political rationality, to think like oh. The kids who were rioting in Ferguson didn't know what they were doing. I just think that's wrong. Whether they know the history of looting or not, I think they recognize the category that I would call surplus population or lumpen proletariat, and they might not have that language, but understanding themselves as no longer being necessary for the circuits of capital and having to figure out how to make their way in the world and possibly change the world from the position of those who are excluded, who are surplus, who aren't understood as necessary, who are managed by direct violence and incarceration, they know all of that. They know that better than I do. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And to pretend otherwise, I think, would be, I, would, I wouldn't feel comfortable with myself doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So then, um, to get back to and deep into the relationship between praxis and theory. So, um, it's a complicated relationship. The 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 obviously the the critical theory turn in the twentieth century was an effort to uh, create some unity between theory and praxis because the theorizing was necessary to guide the praxis in a sense. Um, uh, and I think I think you actually see that in the early Horkheimer. Um, uh, where uh, he is conscious of the fact that, or, 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 or making the epistemological claim that the proletariat doesn't necessarily see the world properly and there's a role for the intellectual, the critical theorist, to actually reorient. Now, 
that would be a notion where there would be a unity of theory and praxis, but of course you could privilege either side and um, it could go in a lot of different directions and there are probably a lot of different stages. There are actually, I'm trying to articulate different stages of that, of that, uh, of that spectrum. Here, I take it, in your view, um, praxis is going, is, has an autonomy. There's an autonomy to praxis um, such that you could say praxis will help us with our theory because we'll, we'll understand things. In fact, in fact, we can understand something better about uh, contemporary capitalist formations based on the kind of uh, protests that are taking place. It, t it tells us something. So then we can, we can theorize better the arc, the history, and we can predict better the future, possibly, of history. So that's where, and so, so from the praxis out there, autonomous praxis, we can then learn something uh, theoretically. Um, but th there isn't a feed... I, I don't think from your book there is a feedback mechanism such that once we have that increased awareness, it would in some way change praxis. The praxis is, remains autonomous. Um, and then also, um, there isn't... Um, at least you maintain that there isn't like a normative dimension to it such that you would be trying to shape the praxis because you have a normative goal in mind, uh, so you wouldn't be using theory to shape praxis in pursuit of a, an emancipatory project, say. Um, so does that, does that seem right? Um, is there anything that you would resist there or... or, or I, I regret to say that I think that seems mostly right, and I think that you've hit upon the thing about maybe the book and maybe just my own thinking uh, on which I stumble the most, uh, which, which is to say, the thing I would say to maybe, to, to agree with you, by cha but change the term slightly, I would say that it's less true that there's an autonomy to practice or to practice than then there's an autonomy to theory, and for me, autonomy is not such a positive term, which is to say, I think there's an autonomy to theory in the sense that one can do a lot of theorizing, and it remains autonomous and does not uh, um, have an easy route uh, on its own to reattach itself to um, lived experience, to practice, and, and, and so on. Uh, it arises from practice, I think. It trails practice, um, and... Um, risks becoming autonomous and I think to be honest this is the risk for you and I is that we'll be left in the realm of autonomous theory um, in our university offices that we both have um, and not being sure what to do with that even if we've understood something better than we did last week or last year and I feel like working through this book was useful to me intellectually and I understood things I hadn't understood before and we know there's a great satisfaction in that but the question of what that means or what that does remains unclear to me mm -hmm. and I want to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I wish that the world was neat in the sense that there was a perfect feedback loop and you got good theory and then you applied it to practice and that gave you good theory and um, I think if that was the case we might have resolved this problem we wouldn't be having podcasts we'd be having communism mm, mm, um, mm. and we're not mm. um, okay so ahead. that's the perfect mm -hmm. that's a perfect segue then to the, to this question of uh, normativity and um, and ambitions um, there's there there you 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 want to maintain that your theory is not normative in any way or that you are not normative in any way with regard to praxis. In other words, you don't, you don't, you're not in favor of riot uh, or in favor of strike, in other words. You're not taking a normative uh, position there. Um, is that right? I don't claim great purity on this, but I want that to be right. Okay, okay, okay. Right, okay. So you don't claim great purity maybe because, like, you dedicate the book to the commune, yeah. right? Right, yeah. and I mean, in dedicating the book to the commune, there is a certain, there is a certain gesture there, of what would it be? Not, it's not necessarily a normative gesture, but it is a, it is an appreciative gesture. It is a, 
it is a fond gesture in a way um, to a particular form of praxis, right? Well, look, the commune isn't a riot or a strike. Um, I'm a communist, uh, and for me, that means a commitment to, maybe a fidelity to, let's use Badiou's language, it's not too late, um, a fidelity to uh, the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. Right? When Marx writes that, he's not talking about a political movement that one can run out and join as a practice. He's talking about those laws of motion that we referred to, um, which for him exist objectively, and for me exist objectively. And so I'm interested in a, my, my normative dimension is a fidelity to that objective, which is not to say perfectly determined, uh, motion, and so the book is an attempt to understand, to, to, to grasp that objectivity rather than the epistemological or subjective layers around it, to grasp that objectivity, and, and one can then imagine what it would mean to move with that movement, to move with that objectivity, um, but it's objective whether I move with it or not. Right, right, right. In other words, in other words, there. So the nor there is a there is a there is a normative commitment. It's it's a normative commitment to emancipation um, uh, or to communism or to to the common or the commons uh, or 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 some notion of communism that means that there is a there is there is a there is an optimism of a particular trajectory mm, that is accompanied with a certain hope, but the hope, which is the normative aspect, doesn't really inflect the prescriptive and the descriptive analysis. Basically, it probably does. But by not by not wanting to claim too much purity, I mean among other things that. Uh, I could imagine I'm keeping these things separate in my head, but I'm quite sure that my um, quest to understand things objectively is inflected by all kinds of shit, um, and, and hope is hope is part of that. So I don't want to um, make claims to have overcome any of those any of those things, but I do understand or have some sense of what what I think is most helpful for me to uh, uh, do, which is to have the best description. You know, I mean, the thing I'll turn back to, so I teach Marx every year, mm -hmm. um, a, cor a course on capital, mm -hmm. and many of the students, grad students, usually, although not, not only, um, have encountered little bits and chunks before. You've probably encountered this as a student. You've possibly encountered it as a teacher. And, and one of the bits and chunks that students over and over again encounter is part four of chapter one of Capital on the fetishism of commodities. Mm -hmm. um, that's deeply and heavily and carefully read, especially in the humanities, which is where I, I live, mm -hmm. uh, because it gives, an, it, it gives that initial account from which theories of ideology will spring and right. why the world appears. That's, that's and, where the epistemological uh, detour begins. Uh, uh, exactly. Thank you. That's Thank you. where it begins. Come talk to my students. That's where it begins. And I mean, my, yeah. And the thing that I say, which the students are somewhat shocked by, is like this is actually not a particularly important passage in Marx. Um, it's greatly overread. It's greatly overread for people who are interested in su in subjectivity. It's greatly overread by people who are interested in cultural production. It's thus necessarily greatly overread in the humanities. But one thing that's clear from reading Capital is. If everybody saw through the fetishism of commodities instantly, if a if a wand were waved and suddenly everyone clearly saw that the real relationship that the, the real relationships were between were really, people, right, right and not right. relationships between right. objects, right. Um, it what what would that transform in the political situation? Nothing, nothing. Um, that moment of of knowledge of of total awareness would transform nothing, and. So the question would remain thus. Well, wouldn't, well, wouldn't mm -hmm. part, I mean, isn't part of the revolutionary impulse, though, associated with, well, with forms of alienation that are associated with that um, fetish critique? In a way? I'm not sure what you mean. No? Um, in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking just the relationship between the capitalist form and the praxis does require, would require on, 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 on a Marx's reading that the workers engage in revolutionary action 
as a result, I take it, of uh, forms of not just um, not just contemporary precarity, right? But forms of, there were I mean forms of alienation from their work product and isn't part of the notion of alienation from the work product inflected by these questions of how we understand the commodity, the product, the object that we've made? I think you might be begging the question. I'm not sure. Uh, I would have to go over the transcript later. Okay. But um, but I think you're, you might be begging the question, which is to say, you're sort of saying, but, but haven't we already agreed that um, one has to have a certain kind of... Um, overcoming of, uh, in, in the sphere of, of knowing to engage in revolutionary activity. Alienation, right, is, despite the great accretion of literature about it, not um, a subjective experience. It has that, that technical meaning, right, which is that the things that you produce, you do not produce for yourself. You have no experience of them as use values. You only experience them as exchange values. And if, if, one, the, the fetishism of commodities was uh, uh, dissolved overnight. That's still how capital would function. We would still be in the wage commodity nexus producing products that, we, that uh, were, were the use value of which was gotten by other people we would never encounter uh, and the exchange value of which we had a direct relationship with. That would mm -hmm. still be true. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that's an objective character of capital. It's not a mystification. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, this does though raise the question of whether, kind of a, in a theory of action, um, these questions of kind of the relationship between theory and praxis recur right at a at a kind of in a crystalline way. But all of a sudden, um, it, it's possible that we also need a theory of action that might or might not then, and on your reading, the self-consciousness and the, and the kind of illusions don't, aren't that important to the theory of action that would then be the mechanism through which kind of history would play out, right? Um, but, um, uh, and, uh, but this, this is almost kind of replicating the conversation about theory and praxis again at, at a different level or at a different level of granularity or something. For you it is because yeah. you think we have to have theories of action. Ah. Ah. Well, um, I, I, but I... But I would think on your account you would want to have a theory of action not... not, not and not a theory of what we should do, not a, not a theorized praxis, but a theory as to how it is that a particular capitalist form leads individuals to engage in particular kinds of praxis, right? I mean, so this is a... I'm using theory of action here not in a kind of a theory of praxis or, or not in a normative praxis way, but just in a purely descriptive you know, theory of action in terms of how it is that um, at the very granular level of the collect small collectivity or individual something is done. Um, uh, this will look like either I'm dodging you or agreeing with you. It may be both and it may be neither. Um, I just want to know what time it is. Which is to say, you know, Adorno has that great sort of account of like poems or the sundial, like the sundial of history that tells you where you are, and I'm not sure. I, I think there was a time in my life where I believed that, but that idea is very wrapped up in ideology critique. Uh, um, and, you know, the, the premise of the book is that forms of struggle tell you what time it is, tell you where you are in history. And that's, that's as far as I'll give in to the desire to know. Okay. Uh, I, w I want to know what time it is. Okay. Uh, I, Knowing what time it is is, for me, the same thing as... And maybe I think this is just a version of what you were saying, is the same thing as recognizing what counts as an action. So, again, to return to what I was trying to accomplish, uh, at least for myself, in the book, um, I wanted to be able to recognize what political struggle, and particularly class struggle, uh, 
for so long identified with the working class and not with the proletariat, the lumpen, and so on, um, uh, to recognize what class struggle was and not miss it. Uh, and that's the same thing for me as knowing what time it is, uh, which is to say the time it is now is different from the time it was at the peak of the labor movement in 1930 or, or, or whatever, uh, uh, wherever one locates it. Uh, and to know what time it is is to, is to recognize struggle for what it is. And, that, and I, I will accept that. Like, that's what I wanted to know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that a theory of action? If that satisfies your requirements, then we're, we're all happy. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, let me, let me, one final area then, um, having to do with one's own praxis or one's own participation in Mm -hmm. forms of praxis. Um, I take it that, um, I mean, one of the, one of the directions I've been going in is that, you know, in terms of theorizing praxis, one can only theorize one's own praxis or, 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 um, that, oneself being involved in particular forms of political uprising is different, uh, gives one a different purchase. Is that, um, I'm not sure that that would be the case um, in your book or in your analysis. Uh, the, the subjectivity of praxis is not necessary to the analysis, I take it, and it's also not um, a requirement in any way. Is that right, or how do you how do you what's your relationship to that that cluster of questions? Oh, as always, I think I want to have it both ways, which is to say, I recognize the truth in what in in what you're saying, which is which is in terms of claims about um, meaning and intention of of political action, I agree that any claims beyond yourself get. Um, at, attenuated quite quite swiftly uh, and, and so that it, it may indeed you may indeed be on to something when you say we can only theorize uh, our own practice uh, in a in a sort of self-authorizing way um, I uh, I also want to have the, the other side of it which I mean I mean maybe right the, the dramatic alternative to that would be like well that's the one thing you can't theorize is your own action if if we accept sort of one of the great pairings uh, in the world of theory, which is determination and desire, um, maybe it's exactly in your own case that that, that you can encounter desires as interfering with, modulating, transforming, interrupting um, uh, determination or, or objective circumstance. Once you get outside of yourself and you're looking at masses of people at operating across uh, a global terrain in ways that cohere, you might in fact be able to route around desire and say whatever the individual desires are, you can make claims. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not averse to those claims. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, okay, okay. But there is a way in which it would be possible to avoid those questions. And, and to a certain extent you do in, in, in this book. Right, um, there isn't a there isn't a there isn't a subjective dimension. There's a subjective experience, which I think I briefly um, try to get at in the book. And I've been, I mean, I, I want to, you know, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I've done both in my life. I organized my first workplace when I was nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was an educational experience. I without. Um, admitting to any illegal activity, I've been very near riots in my life, and um, and and there are meaningful subjective experiences in them. The the one that's most striking to me is uh, the sudden recognition that policing is not an abstract power, but is a very concrete power. It depends on numbers and balance of forces, and at some moment, a crowd of people cannot be policed. They're too large. They're too um, mm-hmm. energetic. And that policing is no longer part of the social experience, and that transforms everything. So that subjective experience of an objective fact, I do not want to, I do, want, do not sit here on my period and say I've done away with the subjective element. Uh, I, what I don't want to do is defer to it. I want to insist that these 
objective affordances are the conditions of possibility in which we have those subjective experiences. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 Good. All right. So I'm, I'm my, the, the thing that I will retain, I think, um, is your notion of the autonomy of theory, really. That really, that really was a kind of a sucker punch to me. Like, I mean, that, that I really like, I, I, I got that. Okay. And, and, and that notion, I mean, you know, I, I, I immediately thought of or think of like, you know, superstructure, basically. Right. And so all of our critical theorizing really as superstructure, whereas what's moving and shaping praxis are these much more foundational uh, questions of political economy. The, I mean, of course, the base superstructure formulation is often now sort of bracketed as vulgar Marxism, right. and, and, and we, we talk about semi-autonomy and, and right. so on and so right. forth. Uh, but I think it still has uses, and especially when we are being cruel to ourselves, which we absolutely must be. And when I talk about the autonomy of theory, I'm doing my best to be cruel to myself and not do myself any favors about the significance of what I'm doing. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, um, you know, what's there is there. Mm. Mm. Great. Great. Any last thoughts? Anything you want to leave us with in particular? Um, I don't think so. I mean, while I'm being cruel to myself, you know, I want to return to that moment, which is just to say, I think there's a risk. You know, I am quite insistent, as you heard, and as you did a, a, an eloquent job of drawing out, I'm quite insistent on trying to think through laws of motion, objective forces, uh, causality, and so on. Uh, um, that said, I, it's clear to me that it matters what people think and how people engage each other in political moments and how they um, talk to each other and how they decide um, collectively to proceed together. And I'm not a theorist of that. Uh, but I don't think it's a meaningless terrain or discourse, mm -hmm. and I don't want to suggest that it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Joshua Clover. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about your book, Riot Strike Riot, and um, I can't wait to continue the conversation. I really appreciate uh, your working me through this and, and um, trying to elicit um, uh, whatever might be there and maybe more than that. Thank you. This is Bernard Harcourt. Thanks for joining us for Praxis 1313, the podcast. To watch the seminars and read our essays and hear other podcasts, please join us on the web at blogs.law.columbia.edu front slash Praxis 1313. Or follow us on Twitter at Columbia CCCT or on the web and on Facebook at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought. Thanks again. It's been a real pleasure.